Uh, you can open up your Bible to the uh, book of Deuteronomy. We're in the very last chapter this week, Deuteronomy 34. So we started this last fall, uh, and we're going to be in the last chapter today. Uh, before we jump into the sermon and to the text, I want to say uh, a couple things um, to uh, just either whet your appetite or inform you. Uh, uh, before we get to the end of the service, I usually try to interject a little short announcement at the end, but I'm so looking forward to sing our la- singing our last song together today that I don't want to interrupt that and the benediction with some formal announcements. So I'm going to say a couple things right now uh, so we can be freed up to just sing and and praise the Lord at the end of our service. But uh, one is that next Sunday we're going to start a short five-week sermon series on church planting. Uh, We're ending Deuteronomy uh, several weeks from now, six Sundays now. From now, I think we're going to start the book of Hebrews. Uh, But in between those, we're going to take five weeks to walk through the subject of church planting because we've had that laid upon our heart as a church to try to plant a church in North Manchester and then hopefully beyond that in years and decades to come as well. So I wanted to make sure we understand the why and the how uh, behind that and underneath that. So that'll start next Sunday. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, But even before next Sunday, this immediate week ahead of us, we're going to do the first of what will be two events this month that we call Wednesday at the Park. Uh, We've done these before out in parks in the community, but we're going to do them here at the Trailhead this summer. Two of them, they're events geared towards kids and then parents are invited to come and stay as well. But our first one's going to be this Wednesday, that's the name, Wednesday at the Park, Uh, in the morning time from 10.15 to 11.30. There's going to be another one in the later part of the month that's in the evening if mornings are not doable for you. Uh, But it's a time where we'll do singing and and Bible story time, activities together uh, for kids and parents. It's 10.15 to 11.30 this Wednesday. Uh, If you would be able to volunteer or be able to help with that, there's a little sign-up sheet out at the Welcome Center as well. And then uh, one thing, this is not an announcement. I just wanted to brag on a group of people uh, before we get into today's text. I was so encouraged, and I don't need to give all the details, but uh, there's a a family in our church who had a significant part of a tree fall uh, at their property this week and uh, needed help uh, getting it taken care of. And I sent out a text message on, I think it was Thursday night at maybe like six o'clock to a bunch of guys I know in the church uh, that have chainsaws uh, and can and could potentially go and help and by 8 o'clock, so like within two hours, I think several of them, like, I don't know how many came because I didn't go because I don't have a chainsaw, nor would I be safe operating one, probably. Uh, I don't, so I don't know how many went. But by 8 o'clock, I got a picture sent back to my phone where there had been this huge limb uh, on top of a deck and whatnot that by 8 o'clock, it had all been taken care of, cut up into pieces, laid on the side of, of their deck, uh, and taken care of. So I just want to say thanks to those gentlemen and just say that how wonderful, yeah, uh, for going to do that. Uh, it's encouraging to see just even practical ways that the body of Christ cares for each other and just want those types of things to grow and increase in number in the life of our church. All right, I trust that you have found Deuteronomy 34. Uh, as we've been going through this book now for several months, I think we started in August or September, uh, one of the things that we've seen, if you've been part with us for any part of it, you've realized this, is that this is a book that some people have said is on the boundary or on the brink of going finally into the promised land that God's people have been waiting for generation upon generation to go into the land of Canaan to enter this land of rest finally, this, this gift of land that God had given them. But there had been 40 years between when they left Egypt, when God rescued them miraculously out of slavery in Egypt, there had been 40 years between that moment 
and this moment that we've been reading about where they're about ready to finally go in the land. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but I want you to just momentarily, briefly think about how many Israelites died in the wilderness between the Red Sea and the Jordan River in those 40 years of time. An entire generation, if not multiple generations, died in that time of wilderness. There had been many fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters who had died in the wilderness, had been likely buried somehow out there in the wilderness, most of them in obscurity. Nobody wouldn't, we don't know their names. Other Israelites wouldn't have known their names. Probably hundreds of thousands of people died between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. But as we end Deuteronomy, as, as we're at the part of the Bible where they're finally about to go into the promised land, as we end and land the plane in this last chapter, there's going to be one final death east of the Jordan River, one final death outside of the promised land. And it's going to be the death of the most prominent, the most influential Israelite of all, the death of Moses. And we've heard his voice throughout Deuteronomy. Almost all of Deuteronomy is him talking, him passing on the law of God one last time to the generation that's going to last beyond him. And we've learned by listening to him over and over again these last several months. This last chapter we're going to learn by watching him. There's not going to be any words of Moses uh, spoken here, but we are going to get to see him and how he dies, how the Lord buries him, and then even how the Lord continues his work after Moses. And so I'm going to read this last chapter for us. It's just 12 verses long, uh, but in my mind, this is like holy ground of scripture. Uh, All of it is holy, but there's particular parts of it that seem especially potent and powerful, and this is one of those texts where we read about the death of Moses. This isn't just any old person. This isn't some random person. This is Moses, the man of God, uh, whose death we're about to read about. And so I want to encourage you to follow along as I read this, Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 12. This is how Deuteronomy concludes. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, 
and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I came across a quote this week from a hymn writer that some of you know. His name's Charles Wesley. Uh, He said this at one point, this short quote. He said, God buries his workmen but carries on his work. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And when I heard that and then read that as I looked it up uh, this week, I thought that is a wonderful short summary of this chapter of Deuteronomy 34. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. That when workmen die and are buried, the work of God doesn't stop. It continues through new people and in new ways. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And so I'm gonna steal that short quote from Charles Wesley and use it as a two-point outline uh, this morning that God buries his workmen, God carries on his work. And I wanna show you both of those things in this text of scripture, that God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And so I want to start with that, that simple statement that's the most obvious, that God buries his workmen. Uh, we see that very clearly in this text. And so I want to just walk back through what we actually see take place, like what we observe and learn from this text about the events that happen at the end of Moses' life. I would, I would note as an aside, we don't know, I don't know who wrote this this last chapter. Uh, I I believe that Moses wrote most, if not all, of the uh, Torah, these first five books of the Bible. I don't know how he could have written this chapter unless God gave him very specific foresight, which he could have. Uh, So he could have written this. Um, But it sounds like even based on the last few verses, this is written, this chapter is written a bit further out in time. Uh, That that is written by some editor, added on to help clarify what happened at the end of Moses' life later. But that does not make it any less true. Uh, This is still part of the word of the Lord that we're to learn from, that we're to follow. And so I want to show you what happens here. We don't know who wrote this, uh, but we trust it as true. So what happens here at the end of Moses' life? First thing we see is that Moses climbs Mount Nebo. Uh, Moses climbs this mountain, and mind you, he is 120, climbing a mountain at the age of 120. Uh, When it says later in verse seven that his vigor was unabated, uh, his strength had not like tapered off, the fact that he walked up a mountain by himself at 120 uh, is proof of that, uh, that he still had strength, that, uh, that he was, had a, a vigor about him still even at the age of 120. But Moses climbs this mountain knowing full well what is gonna happen there, right? God had told him not much before this, go up to this mountain and die. Like Moses knows what he's going up there for. It's not just some trip to go see some nice view and and come back down. He knows that he is going up there to die and Moses goes willingly. He's not drug up the mountain by God. He goes up the mountain. He went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. And he goes willingly, and I just want to say as a a small word of application to those of us who are younger in the room, I think it is a healthy practice for us to watch how older saints go toward death, to observe and note how they face the last years, the last days of their life, the prospects of death. It is wise for us to watch them go up. I cannot imagine the people of Israel this nation watching this man who had been their leader go up this mountain, and they knew what was about to happen as well. 
Um, but it is instructive to us to watch generations, watch people before us go toward death. That is something that teaches us, disciples us in our own faith, in our own following of Christ. So Moses climbs Mount Nebo. Then in the second half of verse 1 down through verse 4, what happens next is that Moses sees the land. He gets to see the promised land, that God shows it to him. That's what it says. The Lord showed him all the land. And then it mentions all these different dimensions all these different portions of the land that God gave Moses ability to see. And if him going up the mountain was proof of vigor unabated, the fact that he could see the land is proof of eye undimmed, right? If his eye was undimmed, his vigor was unabated. I don't, I don't think I've ever met a 120-year-old person before, but I bet if I did, they probably wouldn't be able to see me across the table from them, uh, right? Let alone be able to see across the horizon to see the land and see mountains. But God gave Moses ability through this, uh, this sight that he still possessed, even at 120, to see all of the land. And God doesn't just let him see it. He explains why he's letting him see it in verse 4. God speaks to him one last time and says, This is the land which I swore, of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I will give this land to your offspring. And so he, God is wanting him to see this land, and he's wanting to remind him, even as he comes to death, he's wanting to remind him, Moses, I've told you this a million times, but I have promised this land to my people, and I am bringing it about. Like, you're not going to go in there, but they will. Like, the, I am continuing to keep my promises even post your death. Like I'm going to continue to unfold my story. I'm going to keep my promises. So he gives Moses this view of the land, this promised land. He gives him eyes to see it. But then when verse 5 comes, this inevitable thing that we've known has been looming in Deut throughout Deuteronomy finally takes place, that Moses dies. Verse 5 says that Moses, then it adds this title for him, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And these later verses in this chapter remind us that Moses has been unique in how God engaged with him, that he was known by the Lord face to face, right? Like he was the one who had gone on Mount Sinai to meet with God and to receive the law. He was the one that God had used back in Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to bring these plagues upon the people of Egypt and upon Pharaoh's household. God had used him to do all of these things. God had fellowshiped with him in very unique ways that he didn't with all the nation of Israel. Yet even Moses dies. Like from Adam on, every human being has died. Death has come for every person, every man and woman. Death has come and Moses is no exception. I try to uh, quote the musical Hamilton as often as I can and a quote came to my mind uh, in watching it again over July 4th holiday this line from the song uh, where it says, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. Like death always to this point in time has won. Uh, from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to their descendants all the way now down to this man of God, the servant of the Lord. Death doesn't discriminate. It comes to all people. It comes to all of us also. Right? Death, it comes to all of us. Servants of the Lord are not exempt from death. Servants of the Lord need saving, right? People God has used, like Moses, to be a deliverer need delivered, 
right? Like that we all face this enemy of death that we cannot conquer, that we cannot defeat on our own. Every servant of the Lord, every person of God, every human being needs saving. And that's proof here by the death of Moses, that Moses dies. But I so appreciate verse 6, because it's not just Moses' death that we see and that we read about, but we get to hear about his burial as well. And we may want to know more details in this, but we don't. But it says that he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. That he is God, right? God buried Moses. He had met with him on that mountain, but we don't know what valley, but he took him down to this valley, and God himself buries Moses. I know some people like the idea of private funerals. Uh, This is like the most private of funerals that you could imagine, just the person who has died and God himself. And no one knows this. Whoever wrote this last chapter articulates this in verse 6. No one knows the place where Moses is buried. That continues actually to this day. We don't know where Moses was buried, right? And we, we can speculate why that is. Maybe God didn't want them to idolize the body of Moses or to view it as a, a shrine or a place they needed to come back to worship. He wanted them to, to follow new leaders. He wanted them to worship God himself, not this previous leader, right? But he has Moses' burial place be secret, but I so, as I meditated upon this even yesterday, this was so significant to me, the personal care that God gives even to the dead body of Moses. Like, I think sometimes we are tempted to view ourselves or other people as just pawns in the hand of God that he just uses to accomplish certain things or that he uses as means to an end. Like, well, I need to accomplish this. I'm going to use this man or woman, this boy or girl, this way. And then when, when their purpose is done, I'm done with them. But this shows us the fact that God buries him shows us that Moses was not just a tool in God's hand, right? He had served his purpose. He had done everything publicly that God intended for him to do, everything in the sight of fellow humans that God intended him to do. But even after his death, God cares for him. I don't know what that looks like, that God buried him. I don't know visually what that looks like, but I believe it, that God himself took the body of Moses and buried him. He's ministering him to him even in private leading up to his death, right? Like he didn't owe that to Moses to take him up on that mountain and to speak to him and to show him the land. But even as he's approaching death, God is ministering to this servant of his. And it struck me this week thinking about the burial of Moses that this is... This end of Deuteronomy is the end and not just of Deuteronomy, but it's the end of the Torah, right? It's the end of the five first books of the Bible. And if you go back to the very beginning of those, that set of books and the, the very first human being, what you see happen if you read Genesis 2 is that God, when he was creating Adam, this first man, the way that he did it, I'm going to put a few of these verses up here. In Genesis 2, verse 7, This is how God made Adam. It says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So he he forms his body from dust, but it's still lifeless, right? But then God breathed, this is speaking of Adam, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So keep that in mind. That's how God made the first human being, was this lifeless body that he formed, and then he breathed life into him. 
It all should go well, right? But very quickly, Adam, that man he breathed life into, and his wife Eve sin. And it's not but into chapter 3, after they sin, that God pronounces this curse upon humanity, this curse upon the earth. And part of that curse, probably the most painful part of it, is in Genesis 3.19, where God said to Adam, he said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And what God was saying is, just as I, I created you out of dust and I breathe life into you, someday Adam, someday every human being, your life is going to go out of you again and your body, no longer living, is going to be laid in the ground and start returning to dust, right? Dust to dust, right? That's how he made him. But think as we come now to the end of the Torah, the end of Deuteronomy, we've had generation upon generation of these people who have lived and sought to follow after God, who've been even rescued by him, and it's, there's been this wonderful leader arise, this, this wonderful man of God, this servant of the Lord that's arisen and done miracles and, and been used to rescue God's people. Yet as he comes up on this mountain and he dies, it's like the reversal of Genesis 2, right? Like where God had made this man out of dust and breathed life into him. It's like come full circle at the end of the Torah. Now this man who'd been living, who'd been done wonderful things on behalf of God, God takes his life and God himself lays him back in the ground for his body to start returning to dust, right? Even this great leader of God's people is, is laid in the ground returning to dust. And so it's come full circle and it's just begging for something to come after it, right? Like even if Moses has to return to dust, what gives? Like what is going to happen? How are we ever going to be delivered from this? And I think that's why the last thing we see story-wise here in verse 8, after Moses climbed the mountain, after he dies, after he's buried, is that we see in verse 8, we see Israel grieve. This nation of Israel that's been led by Moses for these, uh, this entire generation, these 40 plus years. It says, this author records for us that they wept and they mourned, right? The days of weeping and mourning, he calls it the last 30 days, an, an entire month. They're grieving the loss of their leader. They're, they're mourning the loss of this man who had been so pivotal to them, that had been an instrument of God so deeply and powerfully in their life. And I very much appreciate this. I don't have time to belabor this, but I appreciate that they set aside a time to mourn. Uh, they, they knew then, and I think we forget now sometimes, that mourning takes time. That it's not something even for people who have the hope of eternal life that we can just flip a switch and shut it off and it's over. Like it was 30 days of weeping and mourning. And I doubt that on day 31 they just, just forgot Moses and never thought about him again. But they gave extended time to grieve the death of this man. They set this intentional time of grieving. I think that's important for us to actually seek to grieve well when we've had loved ones or, or people that are close to us die. This time of weeping and mourning was communal, right? It was something that the, the Israelites did together. All the people of Israel together weep for Moses. And I would just encourage us by, as word of application to be patient with those who are grieving loss. 
uh, not rush people through it, to not feel like they just need to get over it, but to be patient and grieve with people uh, who are mourning. Because not all of these people would have had a close relationship with Moses, right? Uh, he would have been a distant figure, but some of them would. But this entire nation weeps and mourns together. And that's what the body of Christ should do when our people go through difficulty when we suffer loss. So Moses climbs the mountain, he sees the land, he dies, he's buried, and Israel grieves. But this book doesn't end at verse 8, right? There's verses 9 through 12 uh, that, that look forward beyond the life of Moses. If it was just a record of Moses' life, verse 8 would be the end. Uh, but even in these last handful of verses, it's like tipping us forward. It's like looking beyond the life of Moses, trying to look out into the future. Uh, and that's what we see in verses 9 through 12. Because the end of Deuteronomy is not like the end of a dead-end street, as we come to the end of this book, it's not like, oh, we got as far as we could. Now we need to turn around and go back. The end of Deuteronomy here, we'll see from these last verses, is like a stop along a much longer road, right? Like they, they may have been tempted uh, to think that this was the end of their story, that this was the best it's going to be. But just as God buries his workmen, we're going to steal that second part of Charles Wesley's quote, God also carries on his work. Uh, even when the greatest of workmen die, uh, God carries on his work. And so briefly what you see in verse 9, God carrying on his work in the short term right after Moses dies, is that there's a transfer of leadership to Joshua. Right? It says, verse 9, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. And it says that the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's much that could be said about that. I just want to mention a couple of things. One is if you know much about the Bible, if you've read it much, we often think of Joshua just as this military leader, that he's the one who led the conquest of Canaan. He's the one who, uh, under his leadership, Jericho fell, and they, they take over the land of the Canaanites. We think of him as a military leader, but I appreciate here it says the first descriptor, really the only descriptor of him, is that he was full of the spirit of wisdom. Uh, that somehow this wisdom God had given to Moses is now imparted to Joshua, not just to be a military strategist, but to wisely lead the people of God. As they go in and fight, yes, but as they then seek to live in the land that God is giving to them. And what we see here, this transfer of leadership to Joshua, is that Moses is expendable, Right? Moses is dispensable in the plan of God. I'd say that, I remind you of what I just said, that God cared about Moses, was attentive to him. But in the plan of God, the saving of his people, Moses is expendable. Joshua, for that matter, is expendable, right? Me and you are expendable in the salvation uh, plan of God, right? And if, if Moses can die and God's people carry on, there's a, a show that he is expendable. But what is important here when there's a transfer of one leader to another is that I, I appreciate that he says that the people of Israel obeyed Joshua, but it says that they did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it's not even that there's this, this seamless transition from Moses the man to Joshua the man, but the thing that makes it work, the things that, the things that makes any transfer of leadership work in the uh, generations of God's people is not that this guy gets along with this guy and that people like both of them. It's that there is above both of them, there is this word of God that he has given that the people under their leadership are following God. They're not just following this man. They're not just following this person. They are following the commands of God. And that's what you see happen here as Joshua takes over leadership. 
Side note, maybe someday we will go through the book of Joshua. Uh, we will see, because it's fascinating to see how this actually moves into the book of Joshua, the conquest of the land. So that is, happens in the immediate future. God continues his work, right? His work doesn't stop. But verses 10 through 12, the very last three verses of this, look beyond Joshua. They, they look beyond even the writer themselves, whoever wrote this. They, they are, those verses are trying to help readers, trying to help even us look into the future, uh, trying to help them look toward a greater prophet to come. And so in verse 10, this editor, this final commenter says, and we don't know when they would have written it, but they say at least to that point in time, they say there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. I don't know when the person wrote this, but I, I try to imagine kind of a roll call of prophets they may have been aware of uh, that may have arisen by the time they wrote this. I think of prophets like Samuel, prophets like Nathan, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel. There may have been a great roll call of prophets who had come, real legitimate prophets. But whenever this person wrote this, they said, to this point in time, as I'm writing this, nobody has come like Moses. There's been nobody who's arrived on the scene like Moses, this prophet of God who meets face to face with God, who does signs and wonders like Moses did, who confronts the, the, the slaveholder of Pharaoh like Moses did. There is nobody who has come to do that yet. And we could look at those verses, 10, 11, and 12, as verses almost that are more like nostalgia than anticipation, more like, oh, we need to really remember those good old days of Moses, like the, the, when he led us and when he was doing these great things to stick it to Pharaoh and to like, to, uh, like God providing food for us miraculously. It, we could read those verses as like nostalgia. Yeah, like nobody's ever uh, come like Moses. Uh, nobody's been like him. But I don't think the author of this was tr intending it to be nostalgic, like looking back, as much as he was intending for it to be forward-looking in anticipation. Not that, whoa, how great Moses is, but someday there's going to be a prophet better than him that comes, right? And the reason I can say that with confidence is because something we already read almost half of Deuteronomy ago, uh, back in chapter 18, you may remember this if you were with us uh, several months back, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, Moses had told the people of Israel something that God had told him when he had met with them on Mount Sinai. Uh, he recounted for them something God had said to him on the mountain. What God had said to Moses on Mount Sinai was this. God had said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God had said that to Moses. Like, Moses, there's going to be a prophet like you that's going to come someday, and my people will listen to them. I'm going to require them to listen to him when he finally arrives. Moses had said that, right? He had relayed that message. There is going to be this prophet. So when whoever this commentator is that's writing Deuteronomy 34 says, there's not been a prophet since then, like Moses, it's not nostalgic, it's anticipatory. It's saying there is going to be a prophet, he hasn't come yet as I'm writing this, but he is going to come. Like there's going to be a prophet that is to come, and the good news for us 
is that about 1,300 years after Moses died and was buried into the ground, that prophet of God finally came to earth. And his name is Jesus. Uh, He was the prophet that God had told Moses on Mount Sinai, this prophet's going to come. That prophet God knew back then that would actually come was Jesus Christ. And he was giving Moses this glimpse. Someday this prophet is going to come. And he did. And Moses had known the Lord face to face, right? God had interacted with him in certain ways. How much more true is that of Jesus, right? That is not just knowing of God face to face, but has known God for eternity and fellowship with him for eternity because he is God the Son himself. Like he didn't just start fellowshipping with God face to face as a kid or as a teenager. He had fellowshiped face to face with God for all eternity, And he enters into this world and he, Jesus, doesn't have a barrier of sin between him and God the Father, right? Like Moses did. Moses had his own sin, his own guilt. That's part of why he can't even go into the promised land. It's because Moses is a sinner. There's a veil between him and God. Not so with Jesus, right? Like Jesus had no sin bridging the gap between him and God the Father. He saw him and was ministered to him face to face far superior than Moses. Like he had an intimacy with God the Father that far outweighed that of Moses, right? And if Moses performed signs and wonders and no prophet had arisen since who could do signs and wonders like Moses did, Jesus blew Moses' signs and wonders out of the water. Like there's stuff Jesus did we don't even know about. Like we'll learn about in eternity. He was healing people. He was changing water to wine. He was walking on water. He was exercising demons. He, he knew things supernaturally that there's no way he could know. Jesus' signs and wonders far outpaced Moses's. Like he's a superior prophet in that way. And he says, this, this, whoever's writing this says, nobody's come like Moses yet who could do signs and wonders. And he was sent to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and show the mighty power and great deeds of terror like Moses did. What he's hearkening back to there is how God had used Moses to confront Pharaoh. This one who had God's people under his thumb, who had them in slavery. This guy who's writing this is saying, Nobody's arisen who could do what Moses did in like delivering us from that slave master and freeing us. Like nobody's come that can do that yet. There's not been a prophet who could come and and take on the enemies of God uh, like Moses did. And I am here to tell you what Jesus did to confront an even greater slaveholder far outpaces what Moses did. Because Moses went and fearfully confronted Pharaoh. He was skittish about it. He was fearful, but God used him to do it, to confront this powerful man and to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. What Jesus came to do was to take on Satan, was to take on sin, was to take on the enemy of death itself that takes and takes and takes and takes. That is who Jesus came to confront. Not just some earthly man who was mistreating God's people. He was coming to take on our greatest enemy, our greatest enemies, and Jesus won. Like nobody who came between Moses and Jesus could speak of anything remotely like that. And evidence that Jesus came to lead a better exodus, a better deliverance, even than what Moses did, can be found. I love this story. I've probably alluded to it before, but we can't get out of Deuteronomy without me mentioning this. In Luke chapter 9, 
when Jesus was walking the earth, as he's getting closer and closer to his death, he had started to tell his disciples about how he was going to have to suffer and die. And there's this fascinating thing that happened that we call the transfiguration. It's where Jesus went up onto this mountain and he took Peter and James and John with him up onto this mountain and he was transfigured. His face changed, his appearance changed and he had this glory about him But what we don't often think about with that story is there's actually two people who came supernaturally, I don't know how this worked, but came on that mountain and they were seen by Peter and James and John. Uh, Luke records it this way. He says, behold, so this is talking about on that mountain, behold, two men were talking with him, talking with Jesus. They were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and hear this, and spoke of his departure, or you could translate that exodus also. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when Moses comes on that mountain, again, I don't know how that works, uh, but Moses and Elijah come on that mountain, and Moses, who had confronted Pharaoh, and who had been the one that God used to part the Red Sea, and who had done these miracles, and was given all these abilities by God, when Moses is sitting on that mountain with Jesus, he is not nostalgic, right? He is not just looking back to what God did through me back in the day. He is looking forward to what God is about to do through Jesus at Jerusalem. And what he's looking forward to is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the exodus that Jesus is about to lead, right? And the exodus Jesus is about to accomplish, that he's about to lead, is not just freedom from Roman rulers, not just freedom from these centurions who are mistreating us or these taxes that are holding us down. What Jesus is about to free his people from is the rule of Satan, and the dominion of death and sin. That is what Jesus is going to deliver from. Moses, deliver, his deliverance that God used him to lead was impressive, but the deliverance Jesus was about to lead is unmatched, right? That there is nothing that can hold a candle to it. But the way that Jesus was going to accomplish that, and the thing Moses knows is going to come true, the way that that's going to happen, that deliverance that confrontation of evil and death, that defeat of it, it's going to come in a surprising way. It's going to come by Jesus suffering. Not by just him in power and force coming against Satan, but by him laying down his life, right? Here in Deuteronomy 34, Moses is called the servant of the Lord. That title gets picked up as the scriptures go on. And Isaiah, in particular, starts to talk about how there's going to be the servant of the Lord, who comes and the way that he is going to ultimately bring rescue, that he's going to bring deliverance is actually by suffering and dying. And so when this servant, the servant of the Lord Jesus finally comes, that is how he delivers. That is how he brings about an exodus is by suffering and dying. Because when Jesus went to Jerusalem, the, what happened was that the sinless one, Jesus, who did not deserve death, did not deserve God's anger, was not under the rule of Satan or sin. He allowed our sin to be counted to him. He allowed it to be transferred to him. And then he passively obeyed, like he let God put him to death in our place. The anger of God that should be coming upon us 
Christ allowed to be placed upon him, for him to bear the wrath of God in our place so that we might be freed from it, that we might be forgiven of our sin. He suffered as a substitute for us, right? And then he was buried, just like Moses was buried, just like every human being leading up to this, in some way, shape, or form, they had been buried, so too was Christ, right? The servant of the Lord who died, who bore the wrath of God, even he was laid in a tomb, right? He was wrapped, he was cared for, he was laid in a tomb, and I can imagine his disciples, because I would have thought this, when I now see the one that I thought, this is the servant of the Lord who's finally come, like, to deliver us, but now even he died, like, now even he's going to start turning to dust, like, now even he's going to be just a victim of this curse again like what gives like how can this be God that now this man is returning to dust and they would have they began weeping and mourning just like the people of Israel did there in Moab at the death of Moses the weeping and the mourning began but theirs didn't last 30 days right it didn't even last the weekend Right? Because on a Sunday morning, that Sunday morning, Christ was crucified on a Friday, laid in a tomb Friday evening. By Sunday morning, what happened? Like rewind, it's like a replay of Genesis 2, right? Where God had breathed life into that lifeless Adam. In the privacy of a tomb outside Jerusalem, God the Father with no one else around, no one else to see it, God the Father took that lifeless body of Christ and he breathed life back into him. But it was a life that could never be taken away. Adam's could be taken away and was taken away, right? But there was this new type of life that God breathed in the privacy of that tomb into the body of Jesus, a life that would never end, a life that could not end. Uh, he raised him up as a, a new Adam, a new creation. This new creation began in the tomb. And that gives us great hope. That gives us great confidence because someday the scriptures teach us that we will be raised as well, uh, that, that Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one who's been raised, but someday all of us will be raised. All of us will be delivered from death. We'll either be raised to life or to judgment. And we don't know where Moses' body is. I'm not one who would encourage you to like go on a hunt for that or anything. I don't think you will find it. Uh, we don't know where Moses' body is, but I will say this. We do know where Jesus' body is, right? And it's not in a tomb. And it's not returned to dust. Jesus' body right now is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He has been resurrected once for all. And his ministry for us isn't just past tense. Like it's not just something he did for us 2,000 years ago. He ministers to us now. Like he intercedes for us now and he will return for us someday as well. He will raise all of his people up from the dead. Moses, as he comes to die, God gives him this glimpse of the promised land, right? But he doesn't let him go in. Uh, the, 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 he's not allowed to enter into the promised land. He, he lets him peer into heaven. But the good news for us is that we actually do have someone who has entered into the, the true promised land, right? Jesus has actually passed through death and he actually has already entered into the promised land of God. He has already started a new creation. There's somebody already there who's a forerunner, who's gone before us. And what we get to do every Sunday as the people of God 
that this may help you as you think about preparing for the Lord's Day and coming to worship. One way to look at what we're doing is that as we come together each Sunday, it's like God in his kindness to us, just like he did for Moses, taking us up to the top of the mountain and saying, look what's to come. Like, someday you're about to face death, but that is not the end of your story. Like, there is glory that you can't even comprehend, that someday you will get to live in, someday you will get to be part of. And every Sunday as we gather together, it's like lifting our eyes back up to remember that and to see that, that, that there is a promised land that's better than Canaan. Because our stories, we, th- we think of dust to dust as kind of this governing idea of human life in the scriptures. But our stories do not end in dust. Christ's story did not end in dust. It ended and it will, it will never will end. But it, it ends in glory, right? We return to dust. Our bodies, if Christ stays in heaven long enough, will return to dust. But that is not the end of the story. Someday, we, yes, we have gone from dust to dust but then we will go to glory like we will be given bodies that will never die that will never suffer that will never weep and that confidence of looking ahead to the future knowing the promised land that's been gained for us by Christ is what will help us suffer well in this life it is what will help us lament our loss it will be what helps us endure our suffering it will be what will help us even face our own death when that day comes is this prospect of heaven I began with a quote from a hymn writer, Charles Wesley. I wanted to share a more extended poem from another hymn writer named Isaac Watts uh, as I conclude the sermon and conclude Deuteronomy. I wanted to explain a little bit before I read this. Um, What's taking place here with the the death, the burial of Moses becomes like a metaphor in scriptures of of Canaan, that promised land, uh, becomes like a metaphor for heaven, a a metaphor for like the eternal place that God's people will go. Uh, Yes, it's an earthly place, Canaan, but it's like a picture of what's to come ultimately, eternally, finally for God's people. And the Jordan River, which was like the boundary uh, that was still between Moses and that promised land, that Jordan River becomes this metaphor for death. Like that it's something we have to pass through uh, to get to that final resting place, to get through to that glorious resting place of heaven and of the new earth. And so Isaac Watts picks up on that uh, theme but he's trying to, the title of this poem, I would title it something different, but he's a much better writer than me, so I have to take uh, his wisdom. Uh, but he, he called it, A Prospect of Heaven Makes Death Easy. I would change the word easy. Uh, but he, he's saying, A Prospect of Heaven, like seeing into that promised land, make, he said, makes death easy. Like I'm able to face it. I'm able to enter into it with hope. But this is how he said it. It's six little stanzas, but I want to read this for you, and then I want to pray, and we'll sing. As we think about our own death, I want us to hear these words from Isaac Watts. Side note, there's a little slant rhyme in one of the the, uh, words, but I'm just going to read it straight. But this is a glorious poem. He says, There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. There everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers. Death like a narrow sea divides that heavenly land from ours. 
Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood stand dressed in living green. So too the Jews, old Canaan, stood while Jordan rolled between. But timorous mortals start and shrink to cross the narrow sea and linger shivering on the brink and fear to launch away. Oh, could we make our doubts remove those gloomy doubts that rise and see the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes? Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscape o'er, not Jordan's stream nor death's cold flood should fright us from the shore. I love that. Uh, he, he's saying that as we uh, get a glimpse of heaven, as we remember the, the, the realities that Christ has gained for us, as we get a vision of that, as we remember that and see it with the eyes of faith, it helps us to deal with the sufferings of this life. It helps us even at the prospect of death to know that one has gone before us, Jesus, that has, has passed through the waters of death and is living on the other side and that he will bring us to be with him once and for all. Moses, I think, believed that. He wasn't just longing for Canaan. Like he was longing for the heavenly realities. He was longing for the eternal realities and so do we and Christ has gained that for us. I wanna invite you to stand. I wanna pray for us. We're gonna sing a song and then I'll leave you with a word of benediction, but let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray as people who are naturally bent towards a fear of death, uh, a dread of suffering, we pray that you would remind us each and every Sunday, if not each and every day of our lives, that you would remind us of what awaits us as your people, that the end of our story is not dust but glory, uh, that we, when we pass through death, we'll go to be with you and that when Christ returns someday, our bodies will be raised just like his. And that we will live with you in fellowship, and unity, and love forever. So God, I, I pray as we suffer in this life, as we uh, walk through challenges, as we deal with pain, as we face death, I pray that we could do so with hope and confidence. And I pray this in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.